Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Pharmacy Hot Topics, where we sit down with our experts and discuss what is currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. My name is Katora Bullock, and joining me for today's episodes, we have a whole group of experts on population health to discuss how to manage, bill, support, and execute a population health service line. Let me introduce you to everyone with us. First, from ASHP, we have Mary Ann Clythermis, who many of you may be familiar with. She currently serves as the Director for Medication Safety and Quality at the Center on Medication Safety and Quality with ASHP. Then we are also joined by three members of Nebraska Medicine's pharmacy team. Katie Miller, who is the Director of Value-Based Care and Population Health, Lewis Dunn, the Clinical Informatics Lead, and Anthony Donovan, the Ambulatory Pharmacist Program Coordinator. Lastly, we have two clinical pharmacists, Janie Whitner Kigarais, who practices at the VA Ann Arbor Healthcare System, and Sarah Failer, who serves as the clinical integration pharmacist at Parkview Health in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Welcome, and thanks for joining us today. I would like to start by asking Katie to speak on population health from her management perspective. For example, how did you identify and justify the need for population health services and scope the concept? Great question, Katora. Understanding the need for population health strategy really starts with acknowledging the seismic shift occurring in healthcare reimbursement, which I'll let Marianne speak to in more detail in a bit. But in a nutshell, the days of transactional-based payment models where we do more and get paid more have really switched to one focused on value-based healthcare uh, delivery. For those less familiar with value-based reimbursement models, there are typically three areas of evaluation, quality, total cost of care, and patient experience. As providers, hospitals, and health health systems have increased exposure to value-based contracts, it's really imperative that our care delivery models move beyond traditional brick-and-mortar care that really starts and ends at our front doors. We must expand this to include intervisit care. Think care management, care coordination, identifying and engaging around preventative and the social needs of the patients we serve. We really must start to meet the patients where they want to be served, virtual care, home care, uh, even direct primary care to throw out a few ideas. All of these innovative care delivery strategies really must be done with an increased focus on well care prevention and controlling chronic disease to prevent unnecessary healthcare utilization and really start to bend the cost curve as I think about it. In my mind, central to any uh, successful population health strategy is the optimal use of pharmaceuticals. And uh, I may be biased, but who better to do that than, than the experts, right? If I think about scoping the need for a population health strategy and associated people resource, it really starts with an organization reflecting on some key questions. Question one, Do we believe value-based reimbursement is here to stay? Um, I I certainly do, given my role in the organization. Uh, What is our current exposure to value-based care arrangements? How many contracts are we participating in? What type of contracts? 
do those contracts focus exclusively on quality versus um, are we also accountable to total cost of care? How hard and how fast are payers in our state and region pushing um, for value-based contracts? And then really what technology and human resources does our organization have to support uh, a population health strategy? And then reflecting from a pharmacy department's lens, um, I think every pharmacy leader should really start to understand the current and future trajectory of value-based contracts within their organization and and in their region. Start to identify where pharmacists and pharmacy team members can improve the health of the population they serve identify and prioritize pharmacy services that both uh, can be reimbursed in traditional fee-for-service revenue structures, but also impact value-based contracts. And then lastly, start to define value-based contract measures that the population health pharmacy team could own and start to estimate return on investments. I think about contracts that Nebraska Medicine currently participates in and Areas that I think pharmacy definitely plays a role are quality measures such as med adherence or are we prescribing evidence-based therapy? Uh, Our cost drivers, we're trying to influence and impact emergency room visits and and unnecessary admissions. To me, impacting polypharmacy, reducing non-adherence definitely can influence those cost drivers. And then last but not least, I've seen some really innovative strategies where pharmacists are taking over wellness services such as Medicare annual wellness visits um, to really help out our um, sometimes overtapped physicians and APPs in primary care. Wow, that is certainly a lot to consider already, Katie. How would you suggest that someone take the answers to those questions and then obtain stakeholder involvement, approval, funding, and perhaps position approval? I, I must start by saying I was very lucky to return to an organization that had committed to a value-based care journey and really had invested in primary care structure to support our population health efforts. Nebraska Medicine's primary care medical homes do include at this time a plethora of ancillary pharmacy teams. We have pharmacists, care managers, social workers, behavioral health and nutrition support within each of our primary care clinics. But if I had to start from square one, I would really recommend engaging key stakeholders early, including senior leaders, ambulatory operations leadership provider champions, uh, with a heavy lean towards primary care providers because they really do become um, sort of the captain of the ship in the value-based care space. When preparing a business case for a population health pharmacist or, or multiple pharmacists, if you're so lucky, there's a few key items that should be considered. One, What population health initiatives can pharmacists bill for? When I think of value-based care, it's not about doing less. It's really about doing the right thing in the right location for the right patient. So um, providing services that can be billed for that impact the downstream total cost of care, absolutely a win for the organization as well as patients. Are there value-based contract initiative programs that the pharmacy team can impact? I think of this as really the short-term return on investment quick wins that can drive revenue and really show the value of the pharmacy team? And then what are the longer term metrics that the pharmacy team believes their their efforts can impact? Think improving or reducing ER utilization, reducing preventative admissions um, that may be a cause um, caused by medication misadventures or polypharmacy. And I think that's a place that pharmacy in the long term can impact. I will say 
in my experience, tying value-based contract revenue to a single team or initiative is, is quite challenging. Really, it's a lot of different teams in the boat rowing in the same direction that drives value. Um, the other thing that's challenging is typically a six to 12-month delay from the performance period to actually getting paid. So um, a return on investment in the near term is typically a, ta- a challenge from my experience. So an organization must be committed to investing in the long game when it comes to pop health. A couple of key items, always, always, always under promise and over deliver. For how many patients, how many positions to seek within your organization, I certainly recommend a thoughtful approach to growth and demonstrating value. Can you make headway starting with a single pharmacist focused on population health? Um, I think absolutely that thought process really takes a commitment to data-driven approach to population identification and a focus on measures that I think you could quickly demonstrate a return on investment with. And then from that um, financial value, patient care improvement, I think the conversations around expansion of your team become a lot easier. Thank you, Katie. As you mentioned throughout, when developing and managing a population health service, the financial considerations are different from the historical fee-for-service approach and are important to consider. Marianne, billing is something that you are considered an expert in, and we could probably talk about all day. We could spend all day talking about this topic, but can you share some wisdom as it relates to billing specifically for population health? Sure. Um, Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. And you are correct. Because of the complexity of healthcare reimbursement in the United States, and even more complex when you talk about pharmacists, I could talk about it all all day long and probably need to, but I I will stick to the key information, uh, Katura. And talking about billing, there are just, you know, really some few foundational items to be aware of. And first of all, as we all know, pharmacists are not considered healthcare providers within Medicare. So these obstacles remain as we transition to APM, because in the transition, um, there's often mixed models of fee-for-service with APM. And so it's not all of a sudden in most situations where you're just 100% an APM model at this point in time. The other really consideration that I think has not gotten as much attention as the federal is that state Medicaid and insurance regulations either talking about the scope of practice within your practice act within your state or regulations that do not mandate um, or restrict the ability for pharmacists to get reimbursement still exist um, in many states, although it's increasing. And there are a handful of states where Medicaid and commercial insurance regulations have now been updated or uh, changed so that there are sufficient opportunities for pharmacists to independently bill for patient care services. And without understanding this, I think the importance is that um, if I'm starting new, uh, you know, we I'm just starting and I want to be part of this conversation of population health and I go to, you know, a compliance officer, administrator, administrator who has no idea what pharmacists can do and I say I'd like to bill, you'll usually get a no and a door slam. So you really have to understand what's going on in your community, in your state, in your region to understand um, what are those barriers because many barriers still exist, which is why it's so complex. So 
that's important. But second important aspect, I think, also is your payer mix. Um, and as I, what I mean by that is we still are in this mix model where there is fee-for-service along with the APM. Um, and those fee-for-service, though, are usually tied to quality metrics. So you really have to look at what are all your revenue potentials in that. In fact, I think I saw a recent study that showed that 80% of phys physician practices are still predominantly, I'm not saying, or at least half, over half in the alternative payment model. Now, your big centers like University of Nebraska and, and some of those centers are, are really our leaders in moving forward to large population health. But if you're practicing in a community setting or a rural setting, you just may not see that. And I'm giving you just some advice to start from that beginning. So um, for inclusion, for sustainable reimbursement services, I think to start, there are just really two key decision-making people besides the other stakeholders that Katie mentioned. The first are the administrators who are negotiating those contracts and deciding who are the core team members that will be covered under the per member per month or per member per year, whatever complex system but uh, that they're using for this payment. Um, pharmacists are not in everyone's discussions, so you may need to make sure you're part of that discussion. And second, uh, as Katie kind of talked about, is the quality measures. Uh, who's responsible for that? Which ones are they using? And in particular, Medicare, um, for Medicare MIPS, if they're still kind of under the fee-for-service in a lot of their businesses, they have choices. And they may not be choosing measures that pharmacists can contribute because they don't have to. They have a lot of choices and they don't have to contribute to those. So you may want to make sure you're in there, otherwise you're missing that revenue as well. So those are important aspects, I think. Fortunately, um, there's some guidance in this area as, as to whether pharmacists can or should be part of, uh, or core part of a population care team. And it's now five years old, but there's a study that was done by AHRQ. So that's a really nice because it was done by the federal government. And it included pharmacists and a pharmacy tech in a per member per month calculation payment. So looking at um, who that core team should be. And if we looked at all that core team, how much do we need to pay? And they looked at an average internal primary care practice. They used, looked at a geriatric, they looked at an underserved, and they looked at a rural. And they were looking at anywhere from $45 to $64 per member per month. So that gives you some, some baseline to work off of. Um, also, uh, Group Health in Washington had published some data. It's, it's, it's a while now because they are now Kaiser, but they talked about having one FTE pharmacist in a primary care office that, off, that takes care of 5,000 patients. You know, and so you're not going to see all those patients. Some of those are very well patients that just don't even come every year to see the physician. Um, and then the VA has a model, which they've also published, where they do one FTE pharmacist for 3,500 patients in a panel. So it gives you some idea of how you can be a core, be sustainable um, with some of those models. But certainly you should look at your own closer at your own population and what your own region is doing. Um, and also, as you move to population management, it doesn't take long to realize that, wait, I should probably include a pharmacist. So that's that I think it's not difficult as it is in fee-for-service to include a pharmacist because the revenue just barely covers using everything available what a pharmacist costs. And the reason is... Um, 
these models are based on cost accountability. So just the fact that we spend a dollar for every medication problem for the do a dollar we spend on on non-medication, um, that's an, an area you want to, when you're responsible, so you're accountable for that cost, you'll want to re reduce. So that that just begins, uh, you know, that it makes sense to add a premises. And then revenue growth also comes from the numbers of members that are allocated to that alternative payment model in your organization. So if you're having somebody who costs you a lot, like a physician, doing services that somebody else could do, um, then you're not maximizing your costs. So it really makes sense to keep physicians doing that high-level diagnostic work and delegating to those, a social worker, a clinical pharmacist, whatever, who can do um, other activities, in particular medication management, as med management, 70% of all, of all primary care visits. So that it makes sense. And, I, and, and I've actually seen teams in population health of physicians kind of figure that out and then come asking for a pharmacist. So, uh, you know, so those are, those are ways that, that it makes it easier in this model. What's more difficult, and Katie kind of alluded to this, is the attribution to the revenue. And so sometimes at the beginning, when you're trying to put yourself in there, it says, well, how do we know we're getting our bang for a buck in our team? And um, that is really a little bit difficult. Um, you know, how do you split those team resources to cover everyone that's needed? And that becomes even more difficult when the team um, financials are under separate sections. So say the pharmacist is part of the team, but they work for the Department of Pharmacy. So the Department of Pharmacy is going to want some revenue, but how do you split that revenue from the money you're making from a population health alternative payment? It becomes a little difficult. And we haven't worked that out. But um, I think that there are um, there are changes that are happening that will make that happen. So the other thing is that a big change that people need to get used to is that going from a fee-for-service to alternative payment model, you're not putting direct charge codes in. Um, you know, so you are coordinating with the billing revenue team still often does occur though, because what I've seen is a lot of places use those um, to see what people are doing within their team um, to help build that attribution. So you may see people saying, well, I'm still using a charge code. It may not be for billing for that term of payment model, but trying to understand because they do reflect work um, what's going on. Okay. So, I want to be clear that what you're saying is that the alternative payment model approach to population health, pharmacists are not typically placing charges, but they may be placing tracking codes since it's typically a team-based effort to meet quality outcomes to uh, retain that financial incentives that is being paid by the plan. Yes, you're, you're largely correct. In the APM payment model, cost avoidance is key, um, revenue is capitated, and you need to keep your costs and quality down. And so if I was an administrator, I want to know what my team members are doing. And since many of our codes actually do reflect medical decision-making and work, you can use those to help that. Unfortunately, there are over 90 models for attribution currently. None have kind of risen to the top. However, technology 
um, and coding that we're seeing that's evolving in the future uh, may help us with that. For example, if you have an animal measure of a hemoglobin A1C as an immediate outcome for your patient population, using things such as SNOMED codes that kind of track the activity of a clinical practitioner, you can tie what that practitioner did to the patient, you know, did they change meds, did they educate, did they resolve a problem, did they make a diagnosis? And these um, codes may actually be weighted to some degree as to how much they impact that outcome. And then when you tie that information to how often they that practitioner interacted with the patient or performed something, um, then you may kind of start to be able to see some algorithm to who improve that care for that patient. Um, I can give you another, another example. So if a, physician, if a physician saw a patient twice and did one or two higher weighted items, and then the patient saw the pharmacist 10 times through that year, whenever that outcome was measured, and they did more interventions that varies his weight, you could potentially come up with some kind of algorithm that gives a percentage contribution to the revenue that you're getting. Um, and to tell you the truth, this idea is actually currently being um, developed um, by organizations that, such as the National Quality Forum, the ONC, the, the um, ITSARS uh, in the federal government, but it's still early in development and certainly will need to be testing because waiting and all those types of things are a bit controversial. Well, that's certainly a lot to think about, but thank you for the information, Marianne. It, it definitely highlights how crucial IT and analytic support is to any population health effort, both now and looking forward in the future. So I'm excited to ask Lewis and Anthony to share from their IT and analytics perspectives. What ideas or concepts should pharmacy bring to your teams when wanting to start a population health service? For ideas and how to conceptualize the development of population health initiatives, I would challenge anyone trying to create a new population health initiative to ask a few critical and consecutive questions to bring to your informatics group. First, does what we are doing impact all patients equally? For example, in any pharmacist program, which patients successfully complete the program and reach their goal? Who does not complete the program or reach their goals, but also why not? We can use this question to functionalize who our patients are and which patients are at risk. Think of this question um, to define our denominator. Secondly, if what we are doing does not impact all patients equally, what needs to be changed? If patients do not complete the program because they are lost to follow-up or there's a lack of adequate care required, for example, we can come up with an action and an intervention. This action is how we define success, and you can think of this question to define our numerator. Also importantly, how do we identify and provide care for patients who we don't see right in front of us? This is often a little unique for population health where we can make a large impact. So which patients are at risk but not participating in the pharmacist program? Are these patients missing in the denominator? From these questions then, we can arrive on what data and outcomes we need to participate in population health and to demonstrate the pharmacist impact. We defined the denominator and numerator, we specified our service, and our informatics group can then develop the tools needed to find the at-risk patients and the pharmacist interventions. Yeah, thanks, Anthony. Those questions and examples are a great place to start. 
For my part, when you as a coordinator and your team have an idea in mind and basic answers to those questions, I begin work with you all to develop workflows in the electronic health record and consider what data can be captured to aid in defining success or impact of the project. Defining workflows step-by-step step and exploring data in advance also helps to define a clear project scope. Right, and agree. I agree. Work with Louis has been invaluable to our program success. I would also say that if your institution is just getting started conceptualizing population health and services, an excellent starting point is to identify the needs that a pharmacist program can address. Finding your local community health needs assessment, which are often developed in partnership with health systems and local public health departments, uh, can be very useful. Another great partner is your local accountable care organization because they're contract with payers and can help you identify patients, track performance, and coordinate care. Yeah, very good points. Uh, those resources can really help to define the problem and can inform our collaboration uh, between informatics and the pop health or pharmacy teams. Um, to discuss our EHR tools for a moment, we can leverage longitudinal care tools in our system to help us with these initiatives. Um, these tools improve documentation efficiency, promote standardization, and help us to build out programs that are productive and can grow over time because new patients and pharmacists can be easily trained on them. At Nebraska Medicine, we use EPIC, so I can add a few details using EPIC language to give you more detailed information. Um, some of the tools in EPIC that we use to support population health through longitudinal multi-care visits include the Compass Rose and Healthy Planet modules, uh, more specifically, episodes of care, um, as well as smart tools such as smart lists and smart phrases. We have made several improvements to standardize our documentation more recently. Uh, we've created discrete data capture with smart lists, smart phrases, and linkages um, from those to smart data elements across pharmacist pop health services, as well as improved reporting through use of Epic's end user reporting tool, Reporting Workbench. Uh, we've also automated data streams to visualization tools like Tableau and Power BI for managers and analysts to use as they wish. These tools have been very helpful in reviewing program services, productivity, and identifying opportunities for improvement. Lately, we have also been standardizing pharmacist assessments for specific populations and or needs. Um, some examples include the development of assessments for um, CGM or continuous glucose monitoring, as well as smoking cessation. Pharmacists are starting to use discrete data in these assessments uh, as opposed to free texting information into a note. Um, that type of workflow can differ slightly or significantly between pharmacists. Um, so having, having that approach improves capture of data for reporting purposes and drives standard workflows, leading to more efficiency and the ability to use automated reporting. Population health outcomes are best captured after thoughtful planning and testing before implementation so that once in flight, data can be captured in an automated fashion. Manual reporting or pulling data by chart pulls or by hand will lead to barriers in both time, reliability, and data accuracy. That is very true. Manual data collection is not a great method in population health. I also agree that pharmacists should exclusively be using discrete data for anything desired to be reported for population health. It's important to note that this may require some compromises on individual level outcomes in order to achieve population level repeatability and reliability. Pharmacists should think through all potential data sources and not just the EHR also. Other options may include dispensing records if they're separate from your EHR, administrative claims, 
payer claims, as well as patient reported information. When you know what you have access to, you can then determine the specific criteria for identification and uh, subsequent reporting from the data source itself. Yes, uh, knowing what you have and what you can extract um, is very helpful, uh, both internally within your EHR and using external sources. Uh, clinical pharmacy staff may not know all of this information um, immediately, um, so we have found it beneficial to allow them um, to request project time um, with uh, IT and analytics um, so that they can work on planning and coordinate um, with those on that side of things. Having some protected time to devote to new ideas and program growth has also been fruitful here. Um, expanding the pharmacy department to include a population health liaison or coordinator type of resource uh, to work with pharmacists, clinics, and the IT and analytics side um, has been very instrumental. Um, at Nebraska Medicine, we have been able to justify positions like this due to additional reporting requirements by leadership, accrediting bodies, and programmatic goals as well as increased interest in expanding population health programs from clinicians and even patients. Yeah, so the tools and resources available uh, are quite abundant, really. The key components are the use of resources to identify patients, collect data, and track outcomes. We already mentioned a few ways to identify patients, including working with accountable care organizations, reviewing community health needs assessments, and then working with your local public health department. For data, many vendors affiliated with EHRs and claim systems offer population health platforms. For Epic, at least, Healthy Planet is just one example. Uh, another suggestion would be involving yourself with local colleges or schools of public health. Um, so public health schools can be a valuable resource for pharmacists looking to implement population health services. Partnerships with the college can provide access to masters in public health students, their project time, planning, uh, as well as rotations and um, educational opportunities. Additionally, working with biostatisticians and getting uh, access to data analysts may be very useful from a population health perspective. Additionally, research partnerships with the college can help improve the design and implementation of population health services. Also, I can't recommend it enough, student pharmacists and APPE student rotations can be very valuable and they can contribute to the planning and the delivery of patient care as part of population health activities. And I absolutely recommend uh, considering students to be involved. Okay. Those are great insights into the conceptualization aspect of a new population health initiative. Now let's shift our focus to delivery. In your experience, what tools or resources have you found to be particularly helpful in supporting the delivery of population health services in a pharmacy setting? Yeah, um, finally, I just wanna throw in a few tips, um, things that we've learned that have made a difference when developing population health services. Um, first thing, it's, it's an advantage to have team members who can take charge of designing reports um, with quality improvement, as well as research levels of detail. Um, to do this, um, allowing clinically trained person to go through report writing training um, is really important, and it helps to ensure that reports are accurate and useful. Additionally, being proactive with reporting is key. If you're developing a new service or implementing a new tool, it's important to plan the reporting before going live to ensure that the data is being collected in a meaningful way from the start. 
Well, thank you so much for those insights, Lewis and Anthony. Let's hear from Janie and Sarah now for what population health looks like from the clinical pharmacist perspective. Could the two of you tell us about your practice sites? What information has been the most valuable to you in balancing population health services with perhaps other areas of service and how you define success? Yes, absolutely. I'm Janie, and just as a reminder, I work at the Ann Arbor VA Healthcare System, practicing out of their Toledo, Ohio community-based outpatient clinic. My role is mixed, so I do some chronic condition management, some academic detailing, and population health work. I'll focus on what activities I complete when wearing my population health hat today. My practice setting within the VA does make my population health work a little unique since we don't work with variety of payers like civilian practice sites do. However, the VA does measure quality, efficiency, and productivity through strategic analytics for improvement and learning, or SAIL metrics for short. Clinical pharmacists often use these metrics to get started for population health by looking at a population measure on which we are falling short. We then use available tools such as dashboards to target the population to improve patient care and improve the metrics. The dashboard contains all VA patients, and we can narrow down by facility, team, and provider if desired. You can also narrow by many other patient factors, such as disease state, demographics, lab data, medications, and so on. For myself, getting started is as simple as knowing the patient population I am targeting and narrowing down my search within the dashboard. I usually get a list of patients meeting a certain set of criteria that I filter in through this dashboard and work off of. For example, one metric we are targeting is patients with A1Cs greater than 9% and established DKD and or CAD who are not on a sodium glucose co-transporter 2 inhibitor or SGLT2I. Once I filter the dashboard to show these patients, I can review charts to see which of these patients would be appropriate for a FGLT2I and determine what method would work best to complete my intervention. I may do a chart note and tag the provider with my recommendation if there is an upcoming primary care encounter. I may call the patient and discuss the benefits of FGLT2I and CAD and CKD patient myself if there are no concerns. Since I am credentialed and privileged to work at the top of my license by prescribing medications and lab work within the VA. I have something similar, but also a little different, Janie. As a reminder to our listeners, my name is Sarah, and I practice as the clinical integration and population health pharmacist with Parkview Health in Northeast Indiana. Like you, Janie, I wear multiple hats. My population health responsibilities are split between care coordination and value-based care contract measure improvement. Within the care coordination aspect, I am the only pharmacist on the team and am available upon request or consult to my nurse colleagues who are care coordinators or social workers for medication regimen review and counseling. These patients are identified for care coordination through multiple avenues, including recent hospitalizations or ED visits, or determination of high risk or rising risk based on individualized patient factors from our VBC payer and business intelligence teams. This care coordination team assists with navigating the patient throughout the healthcare system, coaching through advanced care planning, providing disease state management and coaching, connecting the patient to needed services or physicians, and facilitating with making or rescheduling needed appointments. 
To bring it down to the day-to-day for what I do for the team, you might find me calling pharmacies to set up automatic refills, completing a referral for Parkview's medication assistance program for medications that are financially difficult for the patient, or sending something as simple as a medication calendar or pillbox to the patient. All of this with the goal of ensuring the patient better understands their healthcare needs and has barriers to those needs removed in order to improve the health of the population we serve. Within the value-based contract aspect of my responsibilities, I manage various measures within the VBC contracts between Parkview and several of our Medicare payers. Our clinically integrated network with the responsibility for these contracts includes over 700 providers in 66 specialty areas, including primary care, and has the responsibility for over 45,000 member lives. When I work with the whole of Parkview's VBC team, I have responsibility for medication measures, including the STARS measures related to medication adherence for diabetes, hypertension, and cholesterol management, and the statin use in persons with diabetes measure, and the HEDIS measures for osteoporosis in women with fractures, and statin use in persons with cardiovascular disease. We don't have the strategic analytics and improvement and learning like your site, Janie, but I was able to create a system of converting the online payer portal data reports into Excel spreadsheets for my use. This was important to achieve since each payer has a different set of priorities and a different formatting for their data flow. I now dedicate a day of each week to a different plan to ensure adequate review and patient outreach. As a part of this, I may direct message the patient through the EHR. I might phone those who don't have direct messaging capabilities, call pharmacies for refill histories, call family members who manage medication regimens on behalf of the patient, ensuring adequate communication with the patient's providers on adherence concerns they may need to know about for their care visits also occurs. Measures that require the initiation of a statin, including patients with diabetes and or those with cardiovascular disease, often include outreach to both providers and patients and therefore require more assessment, communication, and follow-up time. Additionally, I provide data on these measures to the pharmacists that we have embedded in primary care offices for the patients that those pharmacists manage so that I can help them impact that metric as well. Throughout this team-based care for populations of patients we serve, I've learned that communication and collaboration are of utmost importance. Since I'm a pharmacist by training, while I'm looking to impact the overarching value-based measures, I do still think about success through my patient's lens. Thus, I define success by asking myself, did I meet the consult or referral patient's needs? Do they better understand their medication needs? Did I help manage any adverse effects they're experiencing? Did I communicate their concerns to their provider? And from the measure perspective, did I reach out to the patients that are at highest risk of experiencing barriers to adherence? Did I communicate the importance of statin therapy to patients with diabetes and or CVD and then follow up with their provider to do the same? Did I detail the rates of compliance with these measures to my Parkview leaders so they can identify if we're meeting, exceeding, or in need of assistance with resources and patient outreach? Overall, did I make an impact on the patients and my VBC colleagues today? Those are my end goals. Great point, Sarah, on making a difference. I also feel that success can be many things in population health. Even if the patient or PCP decline their intervention, you're at least getting the word out about a particular evidence-based recommendation that could improve patient care. Maybe the patient will think about it and bring it up at their next clinic visit. Maybe the provider will start to include the recommendation as part of their standard of care. And ultimately, hopefully the population as a whole will have better health outcomes. With that, success can be demonstrated through metrics. 
Hopefully, the percent of patients not meeting a targeted metric will improve over time as a result of population health. Thank you for that look into your day-to-day practices, Janie and Sarah. That's all the time we have for today. I want to thank Katie, Marianne, Louis, Anthony, Janie, and Sarah for joining us today to discuss how to manage, bill, support, and execute a population health service line. If you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ASHP's online resources. You can find member-exclusive offerings such as the Preceptor Toolkit, the Research Resource Center, and more. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Hot Topics in Pharmacy. And if you enjoyed today's conversation, be sure to subscribe to the ASHP official podcast for more great content. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.